Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. The show you are about to hear is the remastered version of episode 003. It had some sound quality issues that weren't up to standard, so I've remastered it in November 2020. If you're new to the podcast, I'd strongly recommend listening to the introduction show and the first two episodes. I've been building up to the Waterloo campaign and the forging of the legend of Waterloo. We talked about France quite a lot in the last episode, so I think now is the time to see what the coalition were doing and to take a closer look at the British army on the eve of its great triumph of 1815. I know I said last time that we would cover the invasion but we haven't even looked at the British armed forces that would be fighting in the campaign. Like France, Britain was one of the great powers of the age. She already possessed the seeds of the world-dominating empire that would come to its height under the Victorians. She was not the superpowered colossus that she would become. The first traces of the Industrial Revolution were already beginning to transform Britain. The real changes were far ahead. Still, if not quite the titan she would become, Britain was a financial powerhouse and had a surprisingly large population for her land size, giving her an immense advantage. Britain was certainly militarily respected, especially after her peninsula victories, but she was primarily regarded as a naval power. Indeed, many of the European powers felt Britain made too small a contribution of men to the actual fighting on the mainland. It was regarded that Britain was spending gold and spreading other people's blood. As I mentioned in earlier episodes, British foreign policy was bent towards supporting the navy and preventing any single power from establishing dominance on the continent. The navy was and remains the senior service. In contrast, the army was small and regarded with suspicion. It was mistrusted as being an instrument of royal power and repression. Its woeful performance in the American wars and its habit of losing men in the thousands to disease in the Caribbean meant that it was not seen as an attractive prospect for recruits. In contrast, the navy rarely saw defeat was well-armed and supplied, highly prestigious, allowed a great deal of advancement on merit and provided the glorious possibility of prize money for enemy ships captured. The amounts could be staggering. Some crews were lucky enough to receive 10 years' pay after the capture of two Spanish frigates in 1799 and the British captains got a then mind-boggling £40,000 each. It is difficult to convert monetary values over time. There is some excellent work out there and it's an issue we'll probably spend some time on at various points in our podcast. As a rough estimate though, that £40,000 would probably translate at a rough estimate to £1.3 million in 2017. Keep in mind though that this was before the mass consumer market So whilst it might translate to the purchasing power over 1.3 million, the products you could have spent it on would have varied enormously 
property, food and clothing were the essential items to cover and the upper middle class would add servants to the list of essentials. So let's take Mr Darcy from Pride and Prejudice as an example. I looked at an article to give us a comparison. This is taken from an article written in 1988, so inflation will have changed the figures a fair bit, from how wealthy is Mr Darcy really? Pounds and dollars in the world of Pride and Prejudice by James Heldman. Quote, Mr Darcy is very wealthy. He has an income of £10,000 a year. So if we multiply that by $33.13, then we see that Mr Darcy has an income of well over $300,000 a year. On the face of it, that hardly makes him Lee Iacocca. But Mr Darcy's income is at least 300 times the per capita income in his day. Moreover, Mr Darcy belongs to a very select group. G.E. Minge, an economic historian, estimates that in 1790, about 20 years before the time of Pride and Prejudice, there are only 400 families among the landed gentry in England whose incomes fell within that range, a range from 5,000 to 50,000 a year, with the average being 10,000 a year, end quote. That begins to give you an idea of how amazing that 40000 in prize money was for those captains. With careful management, they had acquired an income equivalent to Mr Darcy's for around four years. That would probably have made them an eligible catch for any Elizabeth Bennets. As you can imagine, events like this were lottery wins, but highly motivating for the Royal Navy. In contrast, the army paid a small amount for horses or guns captured. A prize money system existed, but it was fraught with delays. The British private soldier had to supplement his income with looting, an offence that could potentially see him shot. Still, you will see during the podcast that vast fortunes were looted by the Victorian army, the sacking of the old summer palace in China in 1860 by the French, British and Indian troops is a notable example and the wounds it created fester to this day. The British Army of 1815, unlike the Continental Armies, was in theory almost entirely professional and made up of willing volunteers was a vexed issue as annual wastage for the British Army in the Napoleonic Wars, never fell below 16,000 men. Imagine finding 16,000 new recruits every year. The army came to rely on tricks and dodges, plus a huge boost from foreign troops or mercenaries. A small number of naval shipmen were pressed, but the army didn't make use of the press gang. A lot of soldiers enlisted because poverty left them no other choice. A smaller number were jailbirds or convicted criminals offered the choice between service or the gallows. Given the state of prisons during the early 19th century, the risks of a soldier's life might have been more attractive. Plus, there might be a chance to desert later. A small number joined the ranks for pure patriotism, others to escape unhappy marriages, to avoid starvation or the pure boredom of a long life 
behind a plough on a farm. Some had been tricked by unscrupulous recruiting sergeants. The recruiting sergeants were more than willing to get men drunk to trick them into enlisting. There was an infamous incident in 1795 when a recruiting sergeant gave a gullible boy a shilling to buy him tobacco from a nearby shop. When the lad took the money, the sergeant grabbed him and told him that he'd taken the king's shilling and was required to serve. Luckily, the boy's cries brought an angry mob to dunk the sergeant in a nearby pump. The recruiting sergeants were more than willing to get men drunk to trick them into enlisting or hiding the shilling at the bottom of a flagon of ale to be fished out as the dregs were drunk by a curious man only to be told he had touched the shilling and was now a soldier. In theory, the army was rigidly structured on class lines. The officers were expected to be gentlemen. Commissions were purchased and not earned on merit, as in the French army. The system of commissions is actually a more complex issue than straightforward aristocratic privilege. They provided the officer with a stake in the regiment and were also a form of pension for a retiring officer when he came to sell his commission. Whilst they did allow the talentless to rise, they allowed the rich and talented to gain command at a comparatively young age. The Duke of Wellington wouldn't have achieved such a high rank at such a young age without the system. Commissions could also be awarded for gallantry or patronage, and any commission was considered to mark the holder as a gentleman. The commission itself had a fixed warrant price that it was supposed to change hands for, but there was invariably an additional and illegal non-regulation premium on top. To avoid being accused of making an illegal payment over the regulation warrant price, the deal was made privately and usually handled via an agent. A good example of how commissions worked is Edward Cooper Hodge of the 4th Dragoons. His father, Major Hodge of the 7th Hussars, died near Quatre Bras the day before Waterloo. Edward Cooper Hodge was given a Cornet's commission at 16 when he left Eton, given to him by the Duke of York as an act of patronage, sparing Hodge the £840 regulation price. His jump to lieutenancy cost him another £350 regulation and an additional £250 on top. His captaincy cost £2,035 regulation and 1200 on top. His majority and then his lieutenant colonelcy cost him even more. All told, he paid over £9,620 for his ranks. As you can see, being a successful officer was often a rich man's game. It was money well spent though, as it gained him command of the 4th Royal Irish Regiment of Dragoon Guards at the Battle of Balaclava. His bravery at the battle earned him his full colonelcy on merit. For his services during the Battle of Balaclava, he was promoted to colonel on the 28th of November 1854 and made a CB. For his services during the campaign, he also received the Crimean War Medal with three clasps, which he kind of disliked, and the Turkish Crimea Medal. He received the third class order of the 
Megidi, and was made an officer of the French Legion of Honour. Promotion to Major General, then Lieutenant General, and various commands followed, but he clearly remembered his beloved 4th Royal Irish as he got himself appointed Colonel of them in later life, when he finally died at his home at 26th Cornwall Gardens, London, on the 10th of December, 1894, it was as General Sir Edward Cooper Hodge, GCB, Colonel of the 4th Dragoon Guards. Not bad for a boy from the small town of Weymouth in Dorset. What strikes me about Sir Edward's career is the variety. He was clearly not a rich, thick aristocrat playing at soldiers. He got his introduction from a rich patron and his quick rise up the ranks was by purchase of commission, but his service in the Crimea and other theatres was difficult and dangerous. It involved the major battles of Balaclava and Inkerman, the siege of Sebastopol, the night attack on Russian outposts on the 19th of February 1855 and the Battle of Tchernia. He certainly hungered for distinction. In his diary he wrote, quote, I wish I could get the Legion of Honour and a high-caste Turkish order, end quote. He achieved both, but interestingly, he felt that medals should be available to all frontline troops who had been under fire. Idle baubles were not what he strived for. He clearly earned his general's rank on merit and is a good illustration of how commissions were supposed to work well. Officers were expected to be brave, honest and to lead from the front. They were often heavy drinkers and given to fighting and duelling. This last custom caused Wellington significant agitation as he didn't want to lose talented officers that way. He also felt it set a very bad example to the men and he learned to distrust officers who drank heavily. Unlike some continental armies, the British officer was by and large expected to be at the front, sharing danger with his men. There were exceptions, as with everything in life, some NCOs did receive field commissions, provided they could read and write. Some gentlemen could not afford to purchase a commission. They served as private soldiers, awaiting an officer's vacancy, but they ate in the officer's mess with the other officers. They were known as gentlemen rankers. These gentlemen held a social standing somewhere between the proper officers and the rank and file. They would receive purchase-free commissions when a vacancy became available, but sometimes that could be a very long wait. They were a well-known enough feature of the army to inspire Kipling to pen a poem, The Gentlemen Rankers. They weren't that common. Other educated men who couldn't afford to purchase a commission could perhaps instead find a specialist role for their talents. Like their French opponents, the British relied on a mix of musket-armed infantry who carried the sturdy, heavy, 75 calibre tower infantry musket known as the Brown Bess, combined with cavalry and artillery. The British Army also included a number of dragoons plus some unique units like the light infantry armed with Baker rifles or the rocket battery composed of Congreve's artillery rockets which would see service throughout the Victorian period. 
specialist units of sappers and engineers were available and the marines were occasionally pressed into land service. There were even times when the navy would send sailors and guns ashore to support their land-based colleagues. All in all, the British army of the period, especially in the peninsula, was highly professional, tough, and to use that awful modern phrase, it punched well above its weight. It had its share of bad officers or poor quality units, but if well-led, it had some world-class units, especially the crack light infantry division. Its military reputation in the Napoleonic period was mixed, as it had suffered a number of disasters in Buenos Aires, Holland, Flanders, and the US War of Independence and the War of 1812. The Victorians and modern British tend to remember the brilliance of Wellington in Spain and the success at Waterloo and forget the more mixed record of that period. It was a highly disorganised service in terms of organisational structure. Hierarchies were confused. The artillery was not actually part of the army at all. They reported to the Board of Ordnance in London. The artillery officers were promoted solely based on seniority and time served, not merit, and this caused Wellington no end of headaches. There were times when he was virtually at war with his own gunners. When he did find a talented gunnery officer he liked and wanted to have a command position, he was rarely able to get the officer into the post due to the obstinacy of the board in London. When praise was due, Wellington lavished it on his infantry and cavalry, but rarely passed up a chance to snub his long-suffering gunners. It caused a great deal of resentment. British troops in Ireland were not under the control of the War Office. Instead, they moved to the control of the Irish establishment. The Corps of Engineers also remained under separate control. Sitting uneasily alongside this were the vast independent armies and ships of the Honourable East India Company and its contested territories. The British Army suffered a habitual drink problem at basically all rank levels and many foreign military observers of the period considered it to be a drunken, barely disciplined rabble that fell apart, if not carefully supplied. As we will see, the Victorians took the view in general that since Napoleon was a military genius but was beaten by Wellington, then that obviously made Wellington the greatest soldier who had ever lived. It followed that to reform the army was to tinker with the work of the great duke, and that would be nearly unthinkable. This would become more and more of a problem for the British as we move through the 19th century. One of the most striking things about the British army in the Napoleonic Wars was how small it actually was. Britain did have a larger population than Prussia and outspent French military spending by three to one. The army itself was only 250,000 men strong and that included British forces overseas in India, Canada and the Australias. Even in 1815, the British were fighting other wars at the same time as fighting Napoleon. There was the ongoing Anglo-Nepalese war that 
severely tested the Honourable East India Company's British military forces and would eventually lead to the Gurkhas becoming a part of the British Army. There was a rising of Boers in the Schlechter's Neck Rebellion. There was the Second Barbary War and the Second Kanyan War. Many of these conflicts laid the foundations for future conflicts in the Victorian era. The bulk of the military spending went to either the Navy or as materials and weapons for allies, although the Honourable East India Company at least offset a lot of its military costs by trade, conquest, rampant looting, or out-and-out corruption and theft. The big difference between the British and European armies was that the British army believed in the offensive firepower of the line combined with British fire drill and discipline. The British volunteer troops were trained for a minimum of six months, compared to the two to three weeks for the French. Napoleon and the marshals certainly did believe in extensive training, but with a few exceptions, it was done much more on the march, or on the job, with blank rounds. The British line infantry was usually higher trained than most other armies, especially when it came to live fire, practice and marksmanship. The British expected to fire a minimum of three rounds a minute. Some of the very best could fire five. That compared to the slower French standard of two to three rounds a minute. Luckily, the British, as the richest nation in the conflict, could afford to keep up plentiful supplies of ammunition, including a large number of live practice rounds, as well as blank practice rounds. With light troops or riflemen pouring fire into the enemy columns as they approached, and then the brutal, disciplined volleys of the line regiments, the British created a murderous kiln zone that was nearly impossible to cross. As a highly professional army, they were far, far less likely to break under pressure from attacking columns than the conscript armies of Europe. It wasn't that individual British troops were braver than other nations. Rather, there seemed to be a core of stubborn steadiness that kept the British army in place when others cracked. This might be in part due to the strong regimental system of the British, but also the British were beginning to see NCOs of the army as modern Roman centurions. Many Victorians would go on to almost idolise Roman discipline, social customs and success at empire, and it is clear that as the role of the sergeant evolved, they came to be seen as the backbone of the imperial armies. A professional NCO career path was coming into existence. As any modern soldier will tell you, a good sergeant is essential for an effective performance of a unit. The image of the tough, brave and loyal sergeant guarding the colours, stoic in the face of impossible odds, armed only with a bayonet and a mighty beard or moustache, was an image that would tug the Victorian heartstrings. These were hard men, like Sergeant William Napier, VC, of the 13th Foot, himself a nephew of a Waterloo veteran. He won his Victoria Cross, rescuing a wounded man who was under fire. Napier began bandaging the private when he was hit by fire above the eye himself. The blood flow nearly blinded him and the enemy closed in. Williams fought them off, still tending to the wounded private and his own injuries. 
He then dragged the private back to the safety of the convoy. He refused an officer's commission, offered as a reward, but accepted the Victoria Cross and advancement to Sergeant Major. Already a Crimean War veteran, four major battles, he would go on to fight in another nine battles in India before seeking his discharge. Later colonial wars would show that the Roman model that the British adopted of expecting small numbers of superbly trained and disciplined troops to take on horrific odds and win was largely right. The determination of men like Sergeant Williams certainly helped. A quick note on some terminology. The British Army is organised by way of regiments, but regiments are typically broken down into battalions to actually fight. It was rare for a whole regiment to serve with all its battalions in the field. The regiments themselves were nominally either numbered or tied to a county, but in practice they would take recruits where they could get them. Many a Scottish regiment actually had a rather large sprinkling of Irish or even Northern English recruits in the ranks. Most regiments would field a battalion in battle and then retain another in Britain that acted as a training and recruiting battalion. Some regiments would become single battalion regiments during the various reforms. Typically, a battalion is given a number in front of the regiment name or number. Take the famous 24th Foot, a Welsh regiment with a distinguished history starting in 1689. It fluctuated between one and two battalions during the most famous event in its history, the Battle of Walks Drift. It had two battalions, so they would be referred to as 1-24 for the 1st Battalion and 2-24 for the 2nd Battalion. More confusingly though, battalions would usually fight in collections of companies while sending some of their other companies off to do other tasks. Therefore, it was perfectly possible for a regiment or battalion to be fighting in a number of different actions at the same time. The 2nd Battalion of the 24th fought at the disaster of the Battle of Isandwala, but a company of them was present at the Battle of Walks Drift at almost the same time. I should note though that Isandwana was only a disaster from the British point of view. The Zulus would naturally have counted it as an exceptional military victory, albeit one that cost them dearly. It would also be a mistake to think that the British infantry was only a defensive force, as the Russians would later find out at Balaclava, or numerous colonial foes would realise the British line was like the Roman legion, able to defend against mass attacks, or deliver a brutal assault. Rifleman Costello gives us an interesting example during the Napoleonic Wars. Quote, The 88th foot Irish next deployed into line, advancing all the time towards their opponents, who seemed to wait very coolly for them. When they had approached to within 300 or 400 yards, the French poured in a volley, I should say a running fire, from right to left, as soon as the British regiment had recovered the first shock and closed their files on the gap it had made. They commenced, advancing at double time, until within 50 yards nearer the enemy, when they halted and in turn gave a running fire from their whole line and without a moment's pause, cheered 
and charged up the hill against them. The French, meanwhile, were attempting to reload, but being hard-pressed by the British, who allowed them at no time to give a second volley, came immediately to the right about, making the best of their way to the village, end quote. That quote has some interesting points to pick up on. The French were firing at longer range in an organised fashion and some good effect. The British regiment received the fire on the way in, but their morale remained high enough not just to stand or hold cover, but actually advance with discipline. Notice they are said to advance at the double, but then halt under fire, give a return volley at close range, and then execute a charge into melee. That requires incredible discipline and bravery. Of course, the 88th Regiment of Foot was an Irish regiment of renown, nicknamed the Devil's Own. The Duke of Wellington happily employed them as shock troops and street fighters in the Peninsula campaigns. Strictly speaking, though, the 88th Foot did not become the infamous Connaught Rangers until it was merged with the 94th Foot much, much later. Standing and receiving a British volley, then a bayonet charge, was a hellish experience and most enemies broke before the charge was pushed home rather than face a fierce Londoner or Highlander with a bayonet. There is considerable debate about the bayonet as a weapon system. It is a fairly simple weapon. It was a knife, dagger or sword that fitted over or under the barrel of a musket or rifle. The idea was to give the wielder close combat weapon. Indeed, it may have originated as a backup hunting blade. Soldiers naturally adapted it to serve other duties, such as woodcutting or later on wire cutting. They could be laced together in camp and rammed into the ground to make improvised cooking stands or tent pegs. Crucially, when fitted, they extended the length of a musket to various degrees, combining the advantages of a spear with the firepower of a gun. They also allowed the formation of infantry squares. These squares would have bayonets fixed and pointing outward. Charging cavalry horses would refuse to press home into the hedge of spikes presented by the bayonet. Early bayonets would plug into the barrel of the musket, meaning that firing had to stop, but developments in attachment types meant that bayonets could be fitted and muskets still fired. Some historians take the view that the bayonet had a huge impact on warfare. Bayonets made the pike obsolete, but still allowed black powder infantry to fend off cavalry. They also believe that bayonets allowed infantry to engage in real melee combat, rather than the less effective push of pikes of earlier eras. Other historians are more sceptical about it. Casualty rates caused by bayonets were extremely low. It was almost certain that either the side receiving the bayonet charge would break and retire, rather than staying to fight, or they would hold and the attackers would refuse to push home the charge into the defenders' waiting bayonets. Whilst clearing a position is often vital in military actions, the fundamental point of military engagements is to engage and destroy the enemy's main force, to reduce his will and ability to resist to zero. Causing an enemy to retreat for no gain doesn't really help achieve that. If the charge wasn't pushed home, a short-range firefight was often the result. This could be confused and deadly. 
and potentially isolated an attacker from his artillery support. Another drawback was that commanders, especially Russian commanders, would use the bayonet in place of fire and manoeuvre to make up for the poor training and equipment of Russian troops. This would lead to excess casualties, but there were examples, even during major battles in the Victorian era, where Victorian generals relied on the bayonet over firepower. But bayonets also made loading much slower and made the weapon difficult to use in a confined space. Bayonets haven't ceased in military use, even today, but from the US Civil War onwards, their importance has declined as the lethality and range of other weapons systems has increased. Modern bayonets have become much more utility pieces, serving multiple roles, although they are still on occasion used to clear determined resistance in close-quarter battle situations, such as in the Falklands War or in Iraq and Afghanistan. Officers of the Napoleonic and Victorian period would typically be armed with a pistol and a sword of some description, which were much easier to use in a confined space or a close-quarter battle situation. A sword also marked the wielder as a gentleman. Line infantry officers, the Napoleonic Wars, were cursed with the 1796 pattern infantry sword. The blade was straight, thin and flimsy, making it deficient in both cutting and thrusting. Prone to bending, it also had an inadequate handguard. Such poor quality weapons probably led to unnecessary casualties. British light cavalry were lucky enough to receive the excellent 1796 light cavalry pattern sword. This beautiful sword was 33 inches long, weighing about 2 pounds and 2 ounces, with its strong curved blade, making it an excellent cutting weapon, and it was adopted by the Prussians. Well balanced and extremely durable, it was not a delicate weapon, nor was it suitable for fencing, but it had a wicked cutting edge and was a fine slashing sword easily capable of cutting off an arm or a leg. Lieutenant Henry Lane carried one at Waterloo. Modified examples of it were issued to officers in the rifle companies and light companies. Of course, no discussion of British Napoleonic swords could be complete without a mention of the heavy cavalry blade, loved by Bernard Cornwall's fictional Major Richard Sharp. It had a straight, single-edged blade It was ideally suited to bludgeoning enemies in Malie from horseback. At 35 inches long, weighing in at about 2 pounds 2 ounces, it was easily capable of smashing bones and splitting skulls. The hilt guard was perfectly shaped to act as a knuckle duster, and troopers used to smash the enemy's teeth and jaw with glee. Even if the enemy survived, they would be disfigured left in pain their whole lives, as the rudimentary medicine of the time didn't stretch to reconstructive surgery. It was an ugly but effective weapon. Of course, officers could, and did, purchase non-regulation swords. Usually, officers would purchase an ornate dress version of the standard-issue sword, and that was kept for special occasions. They would also get a campaign sword that was essentially a very well-crafted but plain version of the standard issue sword. This meant the fine and flashy dress sword 
wasn't scratched in battle, and it made the wielder less of a target. A fancy sword marked a man out as worth killing to try and loot the sword. Officers would usually change into their dress sword for ceremonial occasions. Again, this would make Major Sharp stand out. He carried his campaign sword at all times rather than switching. It is a nice touch. is isn't totally out of the realms of possibility either. Officers like Henry Lane had their swords given fancy hilts long after Waterloo but retained the original blades as a mark of their veteran status. In contrast to the superb infantry, the British cavalry of 1815 was rather undisciplined. When it worked, it was world class, but it never really matched the overall long-term operational efficiency of the French cavalry. Another quirk of the British cavalry was that the light cavalry tended to ride heavier horses and be heavier men than the light cavalry in other armies, meaning that there was sometimes little real difference between the light and heavy cavalry. Dragoons were being phased out in favour of hussar or lancer regiments, but the process was uneven. Also, please try to get the idea out of your mind that uniforms were actually uniform. Soldiers, unless on parade, typically carried different bits of kit in different ways. Many soldiers would acquire non-standard items that subtly changed their appearance. Riflemen might swap out Seikos for caps. Backpacks and coats might be looted from the enemy. Dyes on the red coats would run in the rain. And trousers would end up patched and discoloured. The tailors and cobblers that accompanied any army were valuable men who could stop a man's boots coming apart or trousers turning to rags. With supply chains often precarious or ad hoc, losing boots could result in injured feet, incapacity or death. The other super weapon of the British was the shrapnel shell. Cannon of the period could fire a variety of ammunition. The standard was the solid round shot, perhaps heated up during a siege and with a very long range. It could cut a man in half and do the same to two of the three men standing behind him. There was chain shot that the Navy used for chopping down masts on ships. Grape shot that looked like a bunch of grapes in a bag, but then burst into fragments as they spat out of the cannon's mouth. Canister shot was similar to grape, but held in a wooden container. At 400 yards, canister would wreak havoc with enemy formations, but like grape shot was made for short-range work. It was extensively used and later adopted by the Americans, causing fearsome casualties in the American Civil War. The genius of Colonel Shrapnel was to produce a form of canister shot that could be fitted with a timer, allowing it to fire at a long range before air-bursting above the target, spraying them with high-speed fragments of metal. At long range, British gunners could hit targets with round shot, then switch to the more deadly canister-style shot at medium range using the special shrapnel shells, then standard canister at close range. In contrast, the French were often limited to round shot as their grand batteries either acted at long range or had to wait for the enemy to get close to switch to canister. The screams after a canister shot 
must have haunted men for the rest of their lives. The French never really adapted to the British tactics. The marshals of France learned the brutal efficiency of the British killing machine in defeat after defeat in Spain. When Napoleon at Waterloo proposed a frontal attack on the British line on the ridge, they and their generals must have shivered a bit. They were to assault Wellington, the master of defence, on ground of his choosing, up a ridge, and in the face of some of the most lethally disciplined firepower in the world. It would be a grim and bloody business. Right, I think that's probably enough of a background about the British Army for now. Most Napoleonic era European armies fought with similar equipment, tailored to their requirements and doctrines, although the rifle and shrapnel shells were limited to the British in the main. If it seems like I'm spending a lot of time on the Waterloo campaign, it is because it is really important to the Victorian period. Some of the key actors of the era were shaped by their experiences of the campaign. Not just the Duke of Wellington, but a number of prominent Victorians were heavily influenced by the Napoleonic conflicts. Sir Edward Hodge, who we talked about, was born in 1810 and lost his father in 1815. As you now know, he will be involved in the key conflicts of the Crimea. Who knows how his life would have turned out if his father had survived Quatre Bras and Waterloo. Perhaps his son would have been sent into another career entirely, with who knows what consequences. Harry Smith was a dashing peninsula hero who rescued, and later married, the lovely Juana Maria during the siege of Badajoz. He later became the Sir Harry Smith, who fought in India in the 1840s and then in South Africa, becoming a colonial governor. His beloved wife had a number of towns named after her, using her more formal name, Lady Smith. A much less successful British officer, Lord Raglan, was a junior staff officer and military secretary to Wellington at Waterloo, where he lost an arm. Colin Campbell was learning his trade and receiving wounds in the Peninsula campaigns long before he became the famous and very successful Victorian general. The Napoleonic Wars cast a long shadow indeed. It is also important because it created a very conservative military mindset and made the infantry line firing volleys the primary tool that commanders reached for. This stifled innovation and made colonial campaigning a shock for the Victorian army as it tried to transport tactics from European battlefields to very different parts of the world. Then, in the aftermath of Waterloo, the post-Waterloo political manoeuvres would draw the map of Europe for nearly the next hundred years, and Europe was about to become the dominant area of the world in a way scarcely imagined before. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ageofvictoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes 
It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.